Walking Away from Arcadia. We are doing another one of our book review episodes where we're going through the books that act as the main sources for our canon walkthrough episodes. And today we are reviewing Noblesse Oblige, The Book of Houses. As pretty much everyone who has listened to the podcast knows, we have opinions about the she, but we're going to try and review this book as a book, uh, but we are going to spend some time talking about each of the individual houses. The format of this book is a little bit different than a lot of the other books in Changeling. Um, All of the house books follow this format. Each chapter is kind of like its own little kit book, only about one of the houses. Uh, In the case of this particular book, each chapter was kind of clearly given to a different writer, and they do list in the credits who did each chapter, so they are a different writer, and each chapter was given to a different artist. So they really are like a single book unto themselves. So we're going to start out by just talking about the format, the book overall, and then we're going to spend some time on each of the chapters individually because of the format. And we'll probably do that with the other house books as well. So to open, Simon, what did you think about the book of houses overall? It's interesting. This book was developed by Ian Lemke, and it came out in 1998. If I'm remembering right, it was one of the early black and white Changeling books. It was, yeah. And I was actually a little disappointed at the arts, I'm going to be honest. Like, I'm not an art person, but I miss the color. On the other hand, like, from a writing perspective, it did a lot of things I don't remember it doing. It was generally better crafted than I remember. I would definitely agree with that. I have to be honest, I've never been a huge fan of the She as PCs. When we were first doing our All of the She in one episode, I did not have the time to read the book in detail, so I scanned all of the house books and sort of tried to look at at main aspects of them and filter out the repetitive stuff, and I didn't get a deep read on most of the houses because, you know, we were covering 14 houses in one episode. This was a little different since we're just doing this book. I did read them cover to cover. And yeah, it did a lot of things that I hadn't caught the first time and was overall a better book than I remembered it being. Just for context, we're going to be using the reading from this episode to inform our metaplot episodes on Time of Legends, The Sundering, The Shattering, and The Accordance War, and maybe little bits of other things, too. Let's get in a little bit to the format. All five of the chapters, and this covers the five great houses, great houses in scare quotes, because it also includes the exiled Liam. It covers the five houses that were covered in the core book in second edition. Yes, exactly. And so that includes Dougal... Isla Ned, Quidian, Liam, and Fiona. Not in that order, but those are the five houses. Everything kind of follows the kith book format. It opens with some opening fiction in each chapter. And then I think all of them have a creation myth, most of them in the Mythic Age. Dougal and Liam's creation myth are very clearly sundering. And then it gets into... All the things you expect, stereotypes on the other groups, what does fosterage look like, here are some merits, here are some flaws, here's some equipment, here are some NPCs. The thing is, they clearly didn't give a standard outline to each writer, because every chapter is missing some of those things. And then I think like merits and flaws only show up for Gideon. And it's interesting which houses get which of those artifacts, but that was just a little inconsistency that I noticed. For the different eras of Metaplot, we decided this one fit into mostly the first era? Yeah, this really fits into the first era. We have kind of the zeroth era 
which is that period in first edition before they even knew what they were doing. With Court of All Kings and Shadow Court, they sort of decided, okay, this is what we're working with now. This book still really follows that concept and the relationship with the Tuahadadana, and you haven't had it start to break down yet. So yeah, this really falls into that that era. The tentpole for that, for me in this book, is that the Shadow Court and the Unseelie Court are still like desperately intertwined in the plot. We're still running in the era of Changeling Metaplot, where Milgi, the King of Willows, is basically running the Shadow Court, and is intended to be like the big bad guy of the game. The other thing that's interesting about this book is this was written before Kingdom of Willows and all the main meta plot had been set up. And it's clear from reading this book that they were seeding the key players for a much longer story. You can sort of see who those players were going to be. And they've talked about the fact that they were going to develop more kingdom books and continue that story in detail in a couple of the areas, I'm like, oh, I, I kind of don't care. But a couple of them, I'm sad we never got that story. I would have liked to have seen some of the stuff from Dougal play out. I actually think we got some of the less interesting characters in the main story when all was said and done. They turn out to be more interesting only because they got their story and were developed. But I think there was a lot more here. It's a shame it was never written. The other thing we're going to have to deal with with this book for reviewing it for you know, changeling use as a storyteller or a player is that because of the era of changeling metaplot that it's in, you're going to have to do a little finagling to reinterpret some of what was created in this book because the courts don't quite mean what they mean in C20. Some of the houses in this book are really, really strongly written around ideas about what is seely and what is unseely that don't apply anymore you kind of have to do a backflip for some of them. <laughs> yeah, you really do. The one exception to that I would say is Dougal. Dougal's write-up on the Unseelie reads a lot more like C20 Unseelie. Like, they're productive members of this Seelie house, they just have a different lens on things, and as long as you focus on the good work of creating things, you're a little chaotic, but that's okay. It, it reads much more like the Seelie Unseelie relationship from C20. All of the other four books... Unseelie equals evil. Like, it's very clear. Unseelie is your worst impulses, and you have to deal with a little kernel of evil in you, and it's, eh, I never liked that. Some of it you would just change. Some of it you might change to be like, well, this is unreliable narrator. Clearly Gideon has opinions that might not be true. Like, okay, but you're going to have to do something with it. The other thing is a lot of these books have she that were left behind during the Interregnum, that it still treats as Arcadian She, like a lot of them. The question of, okay, now that Autumn She are an absolute thing, what do I do with those stories? So that's definitely something that you'll have to grapple with and decide what that stuff actually means at your table. Obviously, Liam has sort of been written for you, Liam or Autumn, but the other houses are really explicitly Arcadian in some of the tragic stories they tell about their founders who were left behind. And it's a big question mark. So those are kind of some of the common themes that you'll have to grapple with. The first house that we're dealing with in this collection of books is House Dougal. The writer did a pretty good job of following the format here. The book starts with an opening fiction, and then it moves into a history section talking about the house's creation. It's a little bit different from the other ones, as Victor mentioned, because their creation myth is a sundering story, where three of the other houses' creation myths are very clearly meant to be mythic age stories. Dougal goes into a lot of detail about the political structure of the house, and it follows a guild sort of craftsman system of promotion, which when I was reading it, it struck me that it could very easily be a house-specific seeming system, especially since they kind of wrote little rituals you go through to move through the ranks. And in C20, because you know it's a semi-fluid system with the seemings, that might not be a difficult a lift. It wouldn't. And I think there's actually one sidebar where they do call it out as 
being apprentice equals childer, journeyman equals wilder, master equals grump. The only thing, and this is one of those question marks about what do I do with this in C20 is, C20 talks about how you can move back and forth through the seemings, they're not linear. So that makes it a little harder to do that. Like I've been a journeyman, now I'm gonna become an apprentice again. There's a place- a different skill. Yeah, there is a place for that story, but that's not the way it's written here. I don't think it's onerous to reinvent, but you definitely want to do some reinvention on that. They have a, a lot of little hooks in their modern history section for just what happens to be going up with the house. A lot of them translate pretty well into C20, I thought. The places where this one gets kind of weird is every house has a section on subhouses, which would be banner houses in C20. Again, not a terrible lift, but some of Dougal's subhouses focus on the internet, and it suffers a little bit from early internet in World of Darkness. This isn't what the internet turned out to be or how people interact with it problems. So some of those might need a more significant rewrite than the other ones. Yeah, that is definitely true. The weird thing, you bring up banner houses. These are listed as secret societies. The player's guide had banner houses and secret societies. Mm, and some of these probably still make sense as secret societies. Some of them really should be rewritten as banner houses. It's weird. It's not a one-to-one -one sort of transfer. One of the things I liked about Dougal more than the other chapters, Simon mentioned the hooks. Some of those are big canon hooks. You may or may not ever use them. A couple of them are just really little things. I've been trying to find the term again, but there's like a craftsman publication that they release and they make a big deal out of oh, it's constantly being published and people get things in there. And it just makes the house feel lived in, in a way that like I could see having that as a prop, having that as a place where major plot points are dropped in your game. I felt like this chapter did a better job of putting those little things in than the other houses. And it was definitely more contemporary than I remembered it being. I, for whatever reason, hadn't remembered the internet hooks. I thought those were more introduced in C20. It was nice to see that that had been there, but yeah, Simon is right that they don't they don't read it a way that works in 2020. This section goes on to talk about how Dougal interprets the court values for Celie and Unseelie courts, and like Victor mentioned, it's a little bit more compatible with C20 than the other ones turned out to be. It also has a section on how they deal with the Ashit. I think three of the houses in this book broke it down into this is our ideal on the Ashit, and this is the reality of how we follow the Ashit, and two of the houses didn't, which was, honestly, it was one of the more interesting parts for the houses that did for me. So I was, I was sad when the other houses didn't do, well, two of the other houses didn't do that. I think it's important to have that kind of duality there to acknowledge that, yes, this is an ideal. No, we don't live up to it. The other thing that stood out to me about Dougal, and it didn't stand out to me when I read it, it stood out to me after I'd finished the other chapters, is most of the chapters in this book lean pretty heavily into the sheer sort of racist yo when you get into talking about the Galane. We'll get to it, like Islanet in particular is <laughs> explicitly going for that tone. Dougal was the one chapter where they're just kind of straight up yeah, we're terrible to the Galane. We've been terrible to the Galane, and all we can do is try and make it better. And they are like, they have no reason to actually trust us, and we do what we can. I was really kind of surprised at that take. Simon and I have been talking about which chapters are sort of going for the sheer villains and which ones are going for the good guy she. I think Dougal actually takes the biggest stab at good guy she of all the chapters in this book. And that's really the defining difference for me from some of the other chapters. Yeah, their opinions on the Galane were a little strange to me. I need to sit with that for a little bit because Dougal, for me anyway, the, their opinion on the Galane always felt like it should have been more the clueless kind of not considering the Galane privilege, especially given the remit of their house, you know, being crafters and builders and things. Because... 
science and technology has a really badly unexamined Western bias, let's say. Oh, yeah, it really does. And I don't, ultimately, I don't know how I feel about this write-up. I'm not an enormous fan of the good guy she angle. I'm okay with the, we're trying to be good guys, but here's what happens when the privileged try to do right by the underprivileged and actually inspecting that and everything that's wrong with that. Some of the later chapters clearly attempt to thread that needle. Dougal just kind of goes straight for good guy she. So yeah, this definitely has all the failings that go along with that approach. The one last thing that I'll say about the Dougal chapter is they did a lot more work to integrate their main NPCs with their various secret societies and initiatives. They name drop a lot of the NPCs saying this particular person is behind this, this particular person is behind that. They have a whole thing going on with the reincarnation of the knocker who's part of the Trinity that rules the house. They did a lot more story hooks like that. Whether or not that's useful to you at your table, some people love that stuff. Some people don't like it at all. When Simon and I were talking about that, we're sort of not in the same place on how we use that. But if that is something that you like, I would say this is the one chapter that really went out of its way to include that stuff. Next, we have the chapter on House Island. And this chapter was kind of interesting. It was one of the shorter chapters. And the thing that was the most interesting about this one for me is I originally learned about Ilunet by watching some videos online from a particular changeling venue that, that did a bunch of stuff on YouTube. And Ilunet was presented as the conspiratorial house. They were the political movers and the shakers in the shadows. And that's in this chapter. But this chapter really punched, we are the sorcerers among the she like really, really hard. And I've always kind of struggled with that. What is a witch? What is a sorcerer among the fae? It's not like vampire. We don't have blood sorcery slash thaumaturgy slash koldunic. It's, it's all the same thing. That commoner can be just as good as this as you are. Why are we making a big deal about sorcery? And they, they cast the houses, specifically Dougal, Ilaned, and Gwydion as being kind of this trinity of purposes in a court. Gwydion rules, Ilanet is the sorcerer who consults, and Dougal is the one making all the armaments and, and doing the hard work. Then later, like, you get into some of the later chapters, and, like, there are Gideons who are great sorcerers, and then, like, the key characters for Ilanet end up in rulership positions, Melgi and Feralith, and I was really struggling to sort of figure out, like, what is the metaphor for this house? Like, what is their actual theme? I don't, I don't know that that was ever really, there was a clear vision around that. But I will say this particular chapter had some really great tonal work in it. They are clearly bad guys. Like, there's just the section where they talk about Ghislaine is just drippingly racist in a way that at first is kind of like uncomfortable to read. And then you're like, well, you know, I'm kind of glad we're willing to just frame the she this way because I've needed that in this line for a while. There are a lot of little tidbits like that. I also struggled here a bit in that all of those little lived in things in Dougal, this chapter really did not have a lot of that at all. A couple of their conspiracies do involve key characters. It's not mentioned in the conspiracies unless you read all the way into the NPCs, you never realize they're actually connected. And because there hasn't been a lot of seeding, if you're not into NPC templates, you might never get there. So they did a lot of things with sort of like framing the she in a way I've always wanted them framed. But there was just like a practical artifact aspect to this chapter I struggled with not finding. But I know Simon had kind of a different feel on this chapter than I did. I actually think this is probably the best constructed chapter in the book because I don't care about those artifacts. I can come up with them on my own and I usually hate the ones they come up with. 
<laughs> but I think this chapter is the best constructed from a writing standpoint because it goes through and it provides a bunch of links into the other World of Darkness games. Like the reason Ilunid may have been banished from Arcadia is alternatively given as she had associations with Tremere, or maybe it was Dream Speakers, or maybe it was Shadow Lords. Their connection with House Ileal. I don't think this was intentional, but it kind of echoes the War of Seasons and Dark Ages Fey. I didn't have as much trouble finding the core of the house because the sorcerer thing has never made sense to me, and I just throw it away every time they mention it because it, even if you're basing this entirely off of Irish myth, which at this point they are, most Irish heroes are also sorcerers, so it doesn't make sense to specifically call that out. But, particularly in the section where they talk about how Ilunid behaves in the modern world, there's a specific call-out that they don't call this the Iron Age or the Autumn World. They call it the Information Age, and their opening story is a silly little James Bond kind of thing, and it just follows very naturally to me that they concern themselves with information and secrets more than they concern themselves with wizardry because the traditional sorcerer role in a lot of mythology, if they're going to be called a sorcerer and not a warrior sorcerer or whatever, is the advisor. And the advisor deals almost entirely with information and manipulating people, which that follows very easily for me. And like Victor said, this chapter is just dripping with privilege and entitlement and racism. And that went down really well for me, not because I like those things, but because I feel like they need to be all the fuck over the place with the she because people miss the point all the time. This chapter just felt really good for me, I guess. Yeah, I think the one area where I really agreed with your evaluation was that this chapter just comes out and says, oh yeah, we were behind the Knight of Iron Eyes. That was our idea. And uh, screw all the she who balked when they actually realized they were going to have to go through with it. They're pathetic, and we hate them. And I went, wow, for all of the like delicate dancing around the Knight of Iron Eyes happened, who was responsible, who was in charge, we'll never know, let me clutch my pearls that shows up in all of the core books, I kind of loved just having a column of, no, no, that was us. And that was absolutely us. And screw everyone else. Yeah, they have a fig leaf <laughs> over it. Like, we were justified in doing it, but that's it. Oh my god, right? Yeah, and that that is the stuff that I really liked. I do agree with Simon on the whole information age thing. I... And I could even see, like, if they wanted to salvage the sorcerer thing, and this would tie into the whole needing information, if you were to totally rework this chapter, keep the good stuff, but say, we're not sorcerers because we're good at arts. That's literally what they say. You're a sorcerer if you get to, like, level five in an art and level four in another one. I wish they hadn't even written that. But say, we're sorcerers because we understand how perception and reality and secret knowledge relates to the arts and naming and contracts. We're sorcerers because we can weave all of that together, and that's why we care about this information age. I actually think there's a story there that could be really interesting. They absolutely don't tell that story. It's like right there sitting on the table begging to be told. They don't thread that needle, which I think is a shame. They did that a couple of times in this section. There was another little bit about how Freehold construction was Ilunid's idea entirely right during the Sundering as a plot to keep the Dreaming and the Waking Worlds close, and that's all they ever said about it. Yeah, yeah, which is unfortunate. I mean, that's a cool hook. Like, and again, this kind of goes back to something I've heard more recent writers for Onyx Path say, that they try to get a hook in every couple of paragraphs. And they might be little hooks, like just that, we have this publication in Dougal, or we're the ones who came up with the idea for freeholds, where it doesn't need to be canon, you don't need to take it as absolute truth, but if you want to use that to then build a whole story, it, it gets ideas going. There are some good tidbits like that in here, 
but they're all a little bit more abstract like that. They feel distant and mythic, which is not bad. Yeah, it's just, it's a little bit different, but less concrete than some of the other chapters. And the third house in this book is House Fiona, which was a, a kind of difficult read for me because I headcanoned them so hard that, like, I read this, I took it in, and then I immediately threw it out because I liked my headcanon better. But it follows the same basic outline as the first two books. There's an introductory story, there's their history section. I don't really understand why their history section includes a weird, like, let's go kill a Cyclops story, but it's there. And the the thing I think that really makes the Cyclops story stand out for me is that it's just not as well written as the house creation myth is. The story about Fiona and her giving silver to humans for the sake of her human lover, like, it has all these parts that are really meaty. And then there's just a, a monster mash for the other story. <laughs> yeah, it's... The thing that I found really interesting about the Cyclops story, and I'm just going to jump ahead to Gideon for a second. There's this whole tidbit in the Gideon chapter about redcaps and their stereotypes about redcaps. And they're like, you just have to show absolutely no fear. And then the redcaps will tremble before you. Like clearly every time we face a redcap, we show no fear. The Fiona like Cyclops story is all about a super weird Cyclops redcap thing. And then a super monstrous puka beast thing. And the Gideon all just like tremble in fear and are useless. And Fiona kills them with cunning. Okay, it is whatever it is. But I sat there reading it and thinking, this is being presented as like one of their core myths. And it's not being brought up as an affront to Gideon. Like, and that they brought up exactly that in the red cap stereotype in the Gideon chapter, knowing that different people wrote these chapters. It just struck me as a major missed opportunity. <laughs> From the two introductory stories, it tells this whole, almost an epic, really, for the way this book acts, about how Fiona and her house were essentially statusless by the Shattering, and it's sort of implied that the majority of the house didn't go to Arcadia because they were treated worse than commoners there, and instead stayed on Earth during the Shattering and the Long Winter, but it only deals with Fiona during that period, and it's that weird bit where it doesn't line up with C20 very well, because she's not really described as an autumn she, although she probably should have been. And they don't quite come out and say that she was a lost one, but they don't say that she wasn't, and then the resurgence happens, and she dies. Which, I think she might be the only house founder who is explicitly explained what happened to them. Dougal. Dougal is definitely explained. He made steel right. and it killed him. But... <laughs> right, but even Dougal had an interesting little, like, one-line hook there about, or did he become steel? That's true. There, There is the whole, like, he is the spirit of steel, which is, which is kind of cool. I, I think they have a one-line hook about, is she really dead and Fiona as well? But it's not, I mean, it's not interesting. It's just a... Is she dead? Oh. Yeah, and it's a really big missed opportunity because, like, they could have just put a beautiful bow on that because of the way she died. They could have said, and that's where this lake came from. Yeah, it's true. I like her creation myth. I found the whole exiled house thing to be really, really weird because when you look at, like, what she did and you look at, like, what Liam did, and they were both exiled it's hard to pick a time in Changeling canon, especially pre-Shattering, but like roughly around the same mythic era-ish. And then we get to the Shattering, and it literally just says in the Fiona section, the she basically went, oh lord, well we can't leave you here, so I guess we'll lift your exile. Liam, hmm, the whole trial where we decided you were terrible, literally it came up that it wasn't your fault, but mm, fuck you. And I'm like, what? what? <laughs> huh? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and like there's this really interesting story inside the story about Fiona going and finding Agaru and like explaining what she did and why she did it. And the Garu 
like voluntarily swears himself to secrecy except for one person. Yeah, to I, be fair, that was a child of Gaia, and I read that, and I just went, oh, someone's a philodox, to a fault. That's sad for you. <laughs> but that, like, that hit me, because later, jumping ahead to Gideon again, but later, Gideon, being the only house that gets merits and flaws, gets a wolf-touched merit, and I don't know why they get it, especially in light of this creation story. <laughs> Well, the thing that drives me nuts about that merit is that merit is literally just changeling kinfolk. Any changeling should be able to have that merit. Why is it in the Gideon chapter of the Book of Houses? It's bizarre. There's this little aesthetic tie-in with Gideon where they were a wolf for a year, and okay, maybe they got busy with other wolves that may have been Garu, but like we're not going to do anything with it. But they get a merit, and Fiona doesn't. They even flat out say the dream that birthed Fiona into existence was a werewolf coupling with one of their kinfolk. They just say that. It was a strange choice. <laughs> this, this book also follows the format of the previous two pretty closely. I really enjoyed the Ashit section because they straight up come into some like bullshit human rationalization about things <laughs> and there's a, a little hook there where it's implied that they have a relationship with house leonin but it never really materializes into anything the glane section was the weirdest one for me because they mention groups that i have no idea who they are like the marinita mages but it was just kind yeah. of all over the place. That was all over the place. I did think that was a little bit bizarre. The one other thing that really stood out to me in the Fiona section is we get a whole write-up on the Shadow Court and their relationship with them and how Shadow Court Fiona indulged during the Samhain festivities down to like, I imagine like a schedule handed out to everyone who came to the festival with little times on it. They tell you the order of everything, and this will be 20 minutes, and this will be half an hour. That section gets a little freaky, sort of hilariously so, but uh, there's a whole chapter about chocolate pudding. I don't know that it's worth buying the book, but it's worth reading. This was the, the interesting house with regard to the C20 court divides versus the C2 court divides. They did a weird middle ground between the way Dougal handled it and the way Gwydion handled it, because there's definitely like some weird, like, this is our evil side thing going on there. But at the same time, there are lots of little admissions that like, the only she who are Seely full time are mad people. There's a whole subhouse that they very explicitly say, we don't know if they're Shadow Court, but we're assuming they're Shadow Court. That section's probably going to be the hardest to really, like, update and reconcile with itself and C20. Yes. I do think that the whole Shadow Court thing with Fiona plays in pretty well to the revolutionary half of the Shadow Court in C20. Oh yeah, especially with the way they're described as acting during the Accordance War. Yeah, and especially with the way that was fleshed out in Player's Guide. I think if you're really running Player's Guide Shadow Court as like the Black Court and the revolutionary aspects of the Shadow Court are fighting each other internally, and it's not just a unified dark front, there's a really good place for the Fiona in that story. I think that transfers better than some of the other things that need updating. That brings us to... The next chapter on House Gideon, or Gwydion, however you want to say it, I'll probably say both here. This chapter is interesting. The first thing I have to comment on, we haven't been talking about the art much, but I have got to talk about the art in this chapter because, oh, oh boy, they used an artist who gets used a lot in Werewolf. Their art style makes me think immediately of the heavy metal movie. It's not bad, it is a really strange choice for a book about the she. The cover piece is beyond description. Some of the pieces... The title piece <laughs> is actually bad. I feel comfortable <laughs> saying that. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, like, 
this artist does amazing shading and in the werewolf books they tend to be given a lot of like worm tainted pieces and their their shading is just so tactile that it adds to the gross level in like a really good way i actually think they make a lot of sense in werewolf and some of the art in this chapter they hit the kind of there was one piece in particular i looked at and i went oh look it's tarna with clothes on and it hits the high mythic like feel but the cover piece is just overwhelming and then you get to the pieces on the npcs and i'm like i'm staring at heavy metal the movie in a book about the she what is happening it's it is strange the title piece is the worst offender the rest of the art in this chapter is totally acceptable just not my taste the thing that got me about this chapter and maybe this is a petty criticism but the opening story i think is a very strangely twisted retelling of Pwill of Defed, which is in the Mabinogian and it's weird to me because they made this story much edgier and darker than it was in the original myth, which is a thing like this doesn't have to be the original. It doesn't need to be a straight up retelling because it's World of Darkness. But then you pair it with the house creation myth and the house creation myth is a weirdly disnified version of another story in the Mabinogian where they take uh, the title character and they turned his really awful crimes in the Mabinogian into he killed a couple of guards and got drunk, which in the scope of normal myth, like real world mythology, that doesn't even rate as a crime most of the time. <laughs> and yeah, <sighs> it's just really weird to me that they took the one story that was really dark and made it just kind of safe, I guess. And then they took the other story that wasn't dark at all and made it super dark. You're working at cross purposes here, and I don't know why. The one thing I really liked about this chapter, it only really applies to the first half of the chapter. For me, at least, this is this is something Simon and I differed on a fair bit when we were discussing it. But for me, the whole Gwydion metaphor kind of boiled down to psychic self-defense in face of shame like people who are very shame prone will become even worse manifestations of whatever they're embarrassed about because they just have to convince themselves oh no that's not me and they self-justify it away i read a lot of this like folded into gideon and it starts with his creation myth but like the creation myth while i like that they took that angle i agree the creation myth isn't a good execution because basically he goes and he invades this holding of a Tuahadadanan while the Tuaha is off at war and then he gets drunk and his cousin who's with him rapes and pillages through, you know, the castle. And then the High Fairy Lord comes back early and finds him and it's basically written as, well, you didn't actually do any of the raping and pillaging, so... I guess I'll just kill all your relatives and teach you a lesson. But if we're going to be like hardcore mythic about this, and if we're going to lean into this whole, no, I'm better now. I don't have an unseely nature and you're not allowed to either, which is how I've read a lot of the rest of this book. Like, no, have him be the horrible, raping, pillaging, selfish asshole. Have him be the worst one there. And that's why the Tuahadadanan has mercy on everyone else and just kills them but is committed to reshaping this dick to his own image. That would be so much better. And it would drive home a lot of the, I'm not like that anymore. No, really. As it stands, like I see that they were trying to do that with the opening and I like that angle, but like, it's not a great start for that. I think the story I would rather they told that they didn't was where the house is, because I don't care about Gideon himself, but the house is the part that interacts with the game, and having them be caught between impossible responsibilities would have been more interesting. Like, the High King has demanded that we evacuate the Autumn World during the Shattering. We have all these oaths to mortals and to our subjects. We have two competing oaths here, and the Dreaming cares about them both. What do we do? That would have been interesting. 
you know, and then have something similar happening during the Accordance War, where they're like, oh, we're back now, and we are bound to rule, but, oh, these commoners who used to be our subjects are ruling now, and we still have those outstanding oaths to protect them. Well, what do we do now? That tension and kind of, like, crisis of purpose would have been interesting. Yeah, and they settle that up. Like, that, all that setup is in this chapter. They sort of very lightly imply some minor dynamics related to that existed, but they don't follow through on any of it. There's a whole, like, section, the shame of Gideon on leaving and, you know, breaking their oaths because the king told them to leave and they have to follow orders. It's implied a handful stay behind, including the house founder. Of all the house founders to be Autumn She, I did not expect Gideon to be one of them, but there it is. They they just, they like walk up to the story and then they go, nah, that's fine. Yeah, eh. that's, kind of, that's kind of the, the, that's the summary of this chapter, really. We're going to get really close to this story, but we're not going to tell it. Ha ha. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, the hook's there. If you want to follow through on that, it's not a hard story to tell. You know, one of the things that really came up between Simon and I, he sent me this message while we were chatting about this, while we were reading it, and he said that this, really, the lesson of this book is all of the she are Oathbreakers and the Dreaming kind of doesn't care. <laughs> Man, that is most apparent in Gideon. Dougal probably has the least of it. The other houses definitely have it. It got me to thinking, like, if you were to go on the, you had these oaths to these other fae, and you had to commit to them, and you didn't, how did you get around that? There's a really interesting, like, ruin story, and where did the Dantain really come from? Wouldn't it be hilarious if the she were responsible for that as a way to kind of get out of their broken oaths, and then maybe, like, that magic started to fade, and that's why they were exiled, and it's continuing to fall apart, and they have to deal with that? Like, I would love that story. This chapter is just ripe with opportunity. So this is the only chapter that had unique house merits and flaws. I didn't find them particularly gripping. Did did you have any thoughts about them? I mean, we've talked about Blood of the Wolf, which is basically something that absolutely any changeling should be able to take. You should be able to be a changeling and kinfolk the same way a werewolf can be fey-blooded, or hell, even vampire can take fey-blooded. I don't mind it existing. It's terrible being in this chapter. It's the wrong place for it. Unstoppable Fury and Judgmental are both... Like, it's fine that they're in there. They make sense. They're balanced. They're fine game artifacts. They're also so painfully obvious when planted on Gideon that I didn't find them particularly exciting. It wasn't an aha moment. Yeah, that's about all I can say about the merits and flaws. Like the other chapters, they had a section on the courts, on their subhouses, and the Ashit. And the thing I found most notable about those sections was that the other books up to this point have all had kind of a tension between our ideals and the reality of how we have to live in the modern world. Gideon didn't really do that. And I think it was a missed opportunity. No. Especially for this house. <laughs> yeah, especially for this house. I mean, and that kind of goes back to my read on this as being sort of psychic self-defense shame driven is we couldn't acknowledge those things if we acknowledged them they'd be real and they're not real they don't exist like you can read it that way but they also didn't explicitly seed that and that could have been seeded to be honest the way i read this like these guys are villains and they're not villains the way islandette is islandette are just straight capital v villains they're the, I'm such a lawful good paladin that I kind of end up enacting evil. I wish there was more of that in their cardinal characters. There's not, but that's really how I read them. As different as our paths were getting there, <laughs> I also read them as villains. I read them less as damaged, broken people hurting the world around them and more as the prison guards at a concentration camp. I'm just following orders. Yeah, I mean, when you're the one giving the orders, though, the biggest problem with reading them that way, and it really seems to be something they were setting up, but then you have High King David, and he's like the most generic good guy she ever written. 
And that that stands up here as well. There's like all of this, the shame of Gideon, we've messed up all these things, we're completely unyielding. Anyone who's on Sealy must be, you know, terrible and beyond reproach. And like super understanding High King David. And I just, I don't understand any of that. The last book we have is on House Liam, The Exiled Ones, for some reason. And it follows very much the format followed by Dougal, Ilunid, and Fiona and its its chapter system. It opens with a, a modern intro story. It dives into its history. The two things that really struck me about those two parts were that, one, the two stories kind of very nicely gel with each other, but... This also ties into the place where it, you're going to have to do some work to get this book to work in C20. The history section especially is treating King Liam's seely nature as his default personality and his unseely nature as some kind of exalted limit break where he does things he doesn't want to do, and that's really not what the courts ended up being in C20. I gotta say, I think this chapter was relatively well-written, but it's... Definitely a little trickier to navigate. The opening fiction is also weirdly not Liam-specific. Like, the other chapters have very house-specific opening fiction. And the opening fiction of Liam, I understand why they used it. It is evocative of some of the themes they put in Liam. But it's basically just a reverie story from the point of view of the human being inspired. It's well-written. I like having a solid, like comprehensive example of an epiphany i don't think there's enough of that in changeling but you could put this in like any book focusing on any sealy fairy and it would read just fine i don't know that's like half victory half failure i'm really not sure what that is i kind of read it and went yeah i've read charles deland then you get into the meat of the chapter and it's funny i have the same problem with this chapter that simon described having with fiona I have a very specific House Liam headcanon that I run pretty heavily, and it is not similar to the canon at all. And I got into this, and I'm like, oh, right, my headcanon isn't actually why they do the things they do. Weird. What's going on here? So, yeah, it was a weird read for me. The weirdest (laughs) part about their history for me was that there's this aside about how None of the Liam who stayed behind during the Shattering, which was most of them, survived to the Resurgence, which makes no sense. Like, yeah, it would have been really hard during the Black Plague and the Inquisition, but those were, in big ways, like, local phenomenon. And the Plague, particularly, who cares, they're fey. But, like, the Renaissance is coming, and especially in the context of a house that is focused on the power of religious creativity, like, let's talk about where science came from. I guess in a time before C20 and the Autumn She, this is before the Autumn She were even part of Skaha, I went through and looked at a couple of the Skaha references in this book because they mentioned the later houses, and I'm not even certain they knew they were going to make Skaha commoners yet. I know that didn't exist in the Shining Host book, So from the point of view of like, your options are be in a freehold nonstop and become a lost one. Yay. Live in the world and age like a mortal and and get disease like a mortal unless you happen to have enough primal to fix it, which are going to run out of glamour. So sad for you. I kind of get why they wrote this that way. At the same time, the other books mention she who stayed behind and did last through the resurgence. So if you're going to use that logic, then why is that a thing for the handful of she from the other houses who stayed behind? Like it's, there is not a single vision there. On the upside, in a word, in the C20 world, we get to throw all that out. They died and were reincarnated and it's fine. The other thing that really struck me was they have a more meaty post-Accordance War section than the other houses get. And Liam pulled a Switzerland here. They didn't pick a side in the Accordance War. And the story kind of focuses on a group that emigrated to Europe because it was not a part of Concordia, which was interesting to me because it's another one of those eras of changeling plot development things that's different based on when you did the writing and whose direction you were under, I think. But then I got really angry because 
the small collection of Liam's who left emigrated to Amsterdam and told the commoners about the horrors of the Accordance War in America. And then they traveled to France, which for some reason is the center of Europe, petitioned to create their own kingdom in the Netherlands because they rejected monarchy. But they're going to set up a king. That kind of falls into the I don't know what to do with it. The one part of that story in the early part that I liked more was that getting to Switzerland was a fight. And there was a faction of Liam who were like, we should side with the she, and a faction of Liam who were like, we should side with the commoners, they need our defense, and then a faction that wanted to do nothing. And it was a big, heavy fight. You know, reading them as one of the two autumn she houses, I liked that approach a lot more than Skaha where it was like, no, we're commoners, like full C commoners. And we've seen everything horrible that's been done. We care deeply about honor and we're going to side with the she. Because Celia, I guess. What? Um, and there is no big political nuance that you dig into there. So in that respect, I like the Liam approach to that more. But yeah, once it gets was... over to Europe, man, it... it yeah, no. Yeah, the section of the book that deals with how Liam came to their conclusions was interesting because normally I don't give two shits about the she and she solidarity, but the faction leader who was set up to try to push that perspective makes total sense to me. He was trying to get back into the club. I get that as a motivation. Like, it works. It makes sense. And I just more like there being a fight. The other thing that stood out to me about Liam, and I kind of alluded to it earlier with Fiona, is the whole story about what Liam did is bizarre. Basically, King Liam, because he was a straight-up king from the beginning, was entranced by this nun at a convent who sang while she gardened every day, and she had a beautiful voice, and he became enamored of her beauty and the beauty of her voice and her dream about God. He got all caught up in that. And then some other she, I think it was a Gideon, found out about it and went, oh, no, no, we can't have any of that because of the church and didn't like confront him, did the sneaky, manipulative, you know, she thing and spirited the sister away and left basically a tag, like tagged the place. He left this sigil saying, oh, hey, it was me. I did this. So then when King Liam shows up and this thing that he's enamored with has been stolen away, he doesn't know she's been killed. He goes into a rage and destroys the convent and traumatizes everyone who witnessed it and survived. And it's, you know, brutal rampaging to aha type stuff. And then he gets pulled in and accused of betrayal of the fae and bringing the church's wrath down and in the course of the whole thing how it played out comes out and basically the whole court goes oh no no why why did you do that to the the gideon who caused the whole thing you're awful you're that's that's not okay absolutely not and he was punished just as hard but liam was still banished and when all was said and done and the moment came to like bring the exiled houses back in this was the exiled house they didn't bring back into the fold and let into Arcadia. And I was just like, really? We're going to write this story as the house that stayed exiled? That's a choice. Their subhouses section was interesting to me, not because they were terribly compelling, but that it did a really good job of taking religious ideas and orders and twisting them into something almost unrecognizable. I thought that was well done, even if I didn't find it very interesting. <laughs> the subhouses section was interesting. When you got into the later part of the book and into the stereotypes, it really just turned into a lot of stuff that was similar in the other books. The stereotypes around vampires, werewolves, mages, etc. kind of started to blend together. They were very similar, actually, in each of the chapters. It was some repetitive word count. I was really sad that they missed the opportunity to write the stereotype section from the perspective of, say, 
you know, a 17th century clerical scientist studying the Galen because that would have made it different, but still give you the opportunity to be super, super egotistical. <laughs> yeah, it's true. This chapter sets up an incomplete Autumn She thought that was mostly completed later in the Skaha chapter and then was all brought together in C20. You know, despite some of these missed opportunities, it is kind of interesting seeing how the approach to that idea evolved over time. And then the book closes out with a appendix that is entirely made up of ready-made characters. They're going to require a little bit of finagling to get into the C20 system because different arts, basically. Everything else works. To wrap this all up, we've got our scoring system that we're using for these books. And just like the Parliament of Dreams, the points are made up and the score doesn't really matter. The first category, which we decided to add, just for context, is which era of Changeling Metaplot does this book belong to? What do you think, Victor? I think it belongs to the first one. We're going to post a write-up on what we mean by the eras to go along with this, but the zeroth era is that we don't know what we're doing. First few first edition books. The first era is from Court of All Kings and Shadow Court up through, like, I'd say the period where the rest of World of Darkness really started solidly hitting revised, like, denizens-ish. And then the third era is C20 and a little bit uh, the Time of Judgment book mirrors some of what we saw in that last era. So I would call this the first full, like, we have a metaplot concept era. The next topic we have is, is the system functional? And there isn't a ton of system in this book. Like we kind of mentioned throughout, there are bits you're going to have to finagle to fit into the new C20 version of the system, but mostly it kind of benefits from not having very much system to start with. It's mostly a narrative and theme and other artifacts book. There are a couple merits and flaws, and there are treasures in most of the chapters, although not all of them. And then the ready-made characters, I guess, acknowledging that that's maybe 10% of the book. It's functional. I would give it a four. Nothing blew me away. Nothing, like, reinvented or elevated what already existed, but it works. It's it's solid. It's there. And some of some of the treasures are kind of interesting. Is it cohesive with other dreaming products? This kind of melds with the previous category a little bit here. You're going to have to rework some of the metaplot stuff to get to fit in, the places where it touches Shadow Court, Unseelie Court, what the Dantain are, what the Thalane are, are going to need updating to fit, or you're going to have to make some choices about what from C20 you want to drop to make it fit. But that's that's about it, really, I think. What do you think, Victor? If you're still running second edition, I guess I could judge it by that. I'd also give it a four. Some of the concepts are contradictory. Nothing about Changeling in the previous editions could ever be called perfectly coherent, but this gets pretty close. As soon as you put in C20, I wouldn't put a rating on it. Like if you're running C20, mine it for ideas, but understand that you're going to have to reinvent things. Now for the place where we're going to have a fight. Was this an enjoyable read? Was it an enjoyable read? Parts of it definitely were. This also gets into the fact that every chapter was a different writer, and it's very clear when you read through them. I almost don't know if I can judge it as an overall book, because, yeah, parts of it I loved reading, parts of it I was just like, no. I would say at its height, I liked Dougal the most with Fiona probably being almost as high. They were both really flavorful. I'd give those a four. And then the rest of the book, nothing fell below a three for me. There were parts of all of the other chapters I liked, but parts of them where I just kind of fizzled out. In terms of enjoyable read, probably Islandette is the next best one. I had all my issues with the Islandette chapter were like, is it a good game artifact? But it was thematically and tonally really well done. Gideon and Liam 
I got to be honest, I burned out on those before I got to the end. I was just slogging through to review by the end of those chapters. I think it averages out to like a 3, a 3.5 as a book. Like, I really liked Dougal, Ilunid, and Fiona. Like, if it was just those three, I'd say it's a solid four. Gideon and Liam had problems. Most of my problems with Gideon were just that I don't believe anything the narrator says. Liam actually had some typographical errors in it. They weren't big, but they were noticeable. And the book overall, even the parts I liked, would have really benefited from the editor looking for every sentence where the word maidenhead appears and just striking that sentence completely. Because every time that word shows up, the quality just drops right through the floor. Yeah, there's a whole thing in Fiona about oh, the first time young Fiona experiences sexual... I forget exactly what the terminology they use, but basically the first time they have sex, their partner is chosen by the local lord for them. And these two children run off, and it's a time of great celebration. And I was just like, what? No, yeah, what? I, yeah, what? yeah, I read that, and I was like, <laughs> yes, I read Mists of Avalon, and I can't read it again now that I know things about the author I didn't know before. And it all revolves around that topic. Right. So, like... Not having it, but yeah, the but the book is a solid three, three and a half for me. Like it could definitely be better. There are many things that could be fixed, but it's not painful on average. <laughs> I would describe it more kindly than that. I think my biggest problems and you know the two chapters I burned out on were also near the end. Beyond, I think Gwydion and Liam having less things that I found interesting. The latter, there's a slice in like the latter third where you hit stereotypes about other houses, stereotypes about commoners, stereotypes about prodigals. And man, there's some like, there is some reused word count, like not word for word, but it's basically the same thing. And by the time I got to, you know, the fourth write up of that, I just hit that wall and I went, don't care about this chapter anymore. I know what this is going to say. And it just, it made it hard that's a problem we'll have with all the house books. So um, aesthetic value. <laughs> aesthetic value, yes. About aesthetic value. I'd say this is also kind of a three-ish for me. Like, the art isn't bad. I'm a little sad that it's black and white, but uh, that's the period the book came out in. I'm not sure it's super valid as a criticism. The only art I hated was the Gideon title piece. And there were... Throughout that chapter, there were pieces that I looked at, and I was like, oh, that's somebody's arm. I thought that was a table leg. But overall, the art's fine. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say some of the chapters get above a three. I, The art in Dougal's, like, a solid three. Uh, it's not exciting, but it also, I didn't run into any problems. I thought the Islandette art was actually really good. It's very oh, yeah. tonal. That, like that one piece at the beginning with like the owls and yeah. the, the house crest. Like it's not my favorite changeling piece, but it's pretty good. Yeah, I would actually put the Islanded art up at four or four point something. Like it's I mean, as much as I'm not willing to go above four for black and white and changeling, so I guess I'd say four. But it's it's good. It's really interesting. It's rough and energetic in a purposeful way that I liked. Fiona is definitely three. The tone, the artist they chose tonally is very good for Fiona. And so in that respect, yay. This comes from being an art major and having lived through crits on every single project I ever did. I I couldn't look at some of this art. Like the cover piece for Fiona, that she's hand, that she's hand is a baby's hand. Like no human hand is that size unless something else is happening. And I just couldn't not stare at it. There were a couple other places where like, why is the back of that person's head? Why doesn't it exist? And that stuff just drives me up a wall. While the tone was better, I still struggled with it. We've talked about the weirdness of doing like Fomori werewolf artist for Gideon. I don't know why that's a thing. It's... Yeah. And then Liam is very rough. It's another very intentionally rough artist. And I think that's more just a stylistic thing. I would put it at a solid three. It's good, but I don't know that everyone would like it. 
All right, Victor. So if you had to give this a one-sentence review, what would your sentence be? My one-sentence review for this would be, if you love canon and you love the she, you have to have this book. I'm not huge on she canon, but it's mostly well put together. A lot of it's interesting. You'll go through sections where you're like, why is this word count here? Almost all White Wolf books have that. The art is pretty solid. If you're not a canon person, if you're one of those people where it's like, I get pillar books, that's about it. You don't need this book. Yeah, my review for this would probably be, this book was better than I remembered. It needs an update. Well, hopefully nobody thinks we've been replaced with she doppelgangers because we've had some surprisingly nice things to say about this book. And we will link out to the episodes that reference the topics covered in this book. And hopefully we haven't alienated our proletariat brethren with this episode.